Good morning. Reading this morning is from Psalm 110, verses 1 to 4. In your pew Bible, that's on page 594 on the left side. Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy majesty. From the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you give us your word, and thank you that you always speak to us through your word. Uh, we know that you will speak to us today, and please help Mark to assist in that and uh, give him the confidence that his words are your words uh, and give us hearts open to receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Stephen. I have a question this morning to begin that you may never have considered. It's a strange question, but it's an important one, I think. What was God doing on the cross? What was God doing on the cross? This is a very important biblical Christian question. It's always also a very helpful question that could bridge the gap between unbelief and belief. It's also a question posed by Christian theologian Alistair McGrath in the title of his excellent book, What Was God Doing on the Cross? He writes in his introduction, the cross stands at the heart of the Christian faith. But what does it mean? How can we make sense of it? Many Christians feel that wrestling with the full meaning of the cross could bring a new quality and depth to their faith. They believe that they have caught only a glimpse of the insights to be gained from the cross. They're looking for someone to point them to the richness of the Christian understanding of the cross of Christ. They long for the treasure chest to be unlocked and its scintillating contents laid out for all to behold. Now, even if we've never thought of or heard such a question as what was God doing on the cross, a better understanding of the fuller meaning of the cross of Christ is still something that you or I or we together might want and it's certainly something we all need. As good as Dr. McGrath's book is, and it is a really, really good book, and actually quite short, it's not the best or most important place to get a good or even better understanding of Christ's cross. You'll be neither surprised nor shocked, I should hope, to hear me say that the Bible is the best place to get our best and fullest understanding of the cross, because it is. But let's be careful. I don't only or mostly or even primarily mean the New Testament, I mean the whole Bible. 
both Old and New Testaments, because both lend essential meaning to the cross, God's intended meaning, that we couldn't get with only one or the other. In fact, I think it's fair to say that if our understanding of the cross of Christ is only or even primarily based on the New Testament revelation, then our understanding will be deficient, not wrong or false perhaps, but lesser, needing reinforcement, richness, and deepening. For this reason, our pre-Easter, Easter, and beyond Easter sermon series is grounded in the Old Testament prophecy of the coming Messiah, confirmed and fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ as revealed in the New Testament, and now we anticipate his future return. While winding down his book, What Was God Doing on the Cross?, Dr. McGrath wrote concerning the fruit of our faith and the basis of our hope in Christ Jesus, crucified and Jesus Christ raised from the dead, now reigning at the right hand of the majesty on high, quote, the gospel constantly stresses that everything which we could never achieve or ever hope to purchase is offered to us freely. That is what grace is all about. The graciousness of God in giving us things we do not deserve and dared not to hope for. Everything of God's free grace and full mercy. Everything of his unquenchable love and divine compassion toward us was purchased, in a sense earned or paid for, by his Son, our Lord, at the cross, on the cross, and through the cross, which sufficiency and effectiveness of the cross were validated in Jesus' bodily, historical, actual resurrection from the dead. If Jesus had not lived a perfectly sinful, sinless life and perfectly obedient life to God, he could have died a thousand deaths without any eternal effect whatsoever, including for himself. A sinful, even a mostly sinless person could not and cannot save anyone, including himself. Without Jesus' perfect and perfectly satisfactory sacrifice of his perfect life on the cross, God the Son dying that we might live, then there'd be no hope of fulfilling the righteous requirements of God's law, no forgiveness of sins, no escape from condemnation, no rescue from God's wrath, and no eternal life, not for us, not for anyone in the world ever. If Jesus had not been raised from the dead, he could not have saved anyone either. A dead Savior is no Savior at all. So our resurrection from the dead requires and is dependent upon Jesus' resurrection first. And without resurrection, his and ours, we have no hope, and Christianity is a lie. But Jesus is not dead, and Christianity is no lie. Jesus Christ, and only Jesus Christ, died on the cross for us. Indeed, for the sins of the whole world, 1 John 2 and verse 2. And he alone was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit for our justification that we might be made right before God. 
This is why there must be only one way, God's way, that he himself has already provided in the death and resurrection of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and that he himself continues to offer by his word, spirit, and gospel, which are themselves expressions of his great grace and mercy to us. So now perhaps we can see a bit more clearly why salvation only comes to anyone by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. There simply is no other hope. But now, let's consider our CTS, Central Truth of the Series, which actually extends beyond the historical cross and the resurrection all the way to our eternal present and through, God's etern- through to God's eternal future. Here it is, our central truth of the series. Because of his eternal standing, his singular position in creation, and his merited favor, Jesus Christ was, is, and forever will be exalted above all other authorities, rulers, and powers, to the eternal glory of God and for the eternal good of his people. One more time, because of his eternal standing, his singular position in creation and his merited favor, Jesus Christ was, is, and forever will be exalted above all other authorities, rulers, and powers to the eternal glory of God and for the eternal good of his people. Now, our primary text comes from Psalm 110, And the first three or four verses, we'll have to see how far we get this morning. I think we'll only get through three, so we'll pick up at verse four next week. And this is the single most important psalm in the Psalter, that is the book of Psalms, for bridging Old Testament faith and practice to New Testament faith, practice, and gospel. From the prophecy of Messiah from of old to its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ until now. Psalm 110 is the most quoted or cited psalm in the New Testament. From the earliest Christian understandings of Jesus' identity, his work, and his role as Messiah, Psalm 110 has been understood to be both a formative and a prophetic revelation of Jesus' standing. Jesus himself made reference to this Psalm 110 as a prophetic revelation of his identity. And here in Psalm 110, we're given a glimpse, a window, a true revelation into an eternally divine conversation between the triune God, the Lord Yahweh, and the pre-incarnate Son, the Lord Adonai. As it reads, the Lord Yahweh says to my Lord Adonai, in a sense, the covenant-making God Yahweh, the Lord, speaks to David's covenant-keeping God, my Lord Adonai. With the Holy Spirit strongly implied in the revelation of the scene and in the inclusion of David in it, we have here an an historically clear Old Testament reference and confirmation of the Holy Trinity, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. But I'd actually add a third or perhaps even fourth conversation partner into the mix, and that is David. The anointed prophet to Israel, the the, the anointed priest for Israel, the uh, anointed king over Israel, who serves in scripture and in history as a type, 
a precursor and an ancestral father of the promised Messiah, also known as the son of David. David both records and participates in the conversation in Psalm 110, or at least in the narration, albeit a bit lesser role than the Lord of glory, Yahweh, and God's pre-incarnate son, Adonai, my Lord, as David puts it, referring, we believe and affirm, to Jesus Christ himself. And we'll see that Psalm 110 is divided by two conversations between two main characters, the Holy Trinity, Yahweh, the Lord, and the incarnate son here, Adonai, the Lord. And a third lesser one, David. I know it's a bit complicated, but I think working through it is well worthwhile. In verses 1 through 4, look there with me, Yahweh, the triune God of heaven, creation and eternity, is speaking with Adonai. So you see there, the, the Lord says to my Lord, this literally says, Yahweh says to Adonai, or, or my Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He's speaking about his standing in eternity past, eternity present, and eternity future. That is the pre-incarnate Christ and Savior of the world. And he's speaking to him as eternal Lord of all, eternal priest for all, and eternal word to all forever. And this is where we'll spend the rest of our time this morning. But before we move on, let's, let's just mention that the second conversation, part, part two, of Psalm 110, verses, we'll say, 4 through 7, because we'll pick up 4 next week, is between the pre-incarnate Christ Adonai, the Lord, and David, his ancestral and prophetic father, his prototype and his precursor in Israel. But that's for next Sunday mostly, keeping in mind that we'll finish up with this next week. Let's look at our text for this morning, beginning with verse 1 of Psalm 110, through the hopefully helpful lens of our first textual point, which you'll see here on the screen. Number one, David is both the recorder of and a character within this psalm. David is both the recorder of and a character within this psalm. Now, I want you to note that I'm not saying the writer of. Yes, he took it down, but, but he was at that point no more than an amanuensis. I know that's a funny word. It means one who writes for another. Um, He's not writing poetry here. He's recording events that are happening literally in the heavenlies that he's been given insight into, a glimpse into. We see here in the, in the textual um, heading, a psalm of David, and then he goes on to pen in seven verses, a psalm unlike any other psalm. It is literally unique in the other 149 psalms of the Psalter. Yahweh says to my Adonai. Of the 150 psalms in the Psalter, David wrote at least half. 73 are explicitly attributed to him, but he likely wrote many more than that. For whatever reason, they lack his specific attribution with themes, form, and tone very much like his, almost certainly his, quite a number of them. So we'll say that he wrote at least half and probably quite a, quite a few more than half of the 150 psalms. But here, the textual heading, a psalm of David, 
clearly identifies Psalm 110 as one of David's psalms, and there is no reason to think of it otherwise. Two clues tell us that David is narrating at least. When I say at least narrating, I mean he's actually a contributor to the conversation. First, the textual heading, a psalm of David. This tells us that this is one of 73 psalms in the Psalter explicitly attributed to David, but it's important to note that he isn't so much writing as recording these two conversations. So while the writing credit of this profound prophetic revelatory psalm goes to David, it's not like most of his others. And it's different in another important way. David is also a participant, an actor, a character, in that he is present for and listening into the conversation. Secondly, there are also two key places where David inserts himself that give us even greater clarity that he's more than a narrator, but also a participant in the conversation and the drama that will never conclude until the end of days arrives in full glory. Now, I want you to hold that that thought until next week. It'll really come in handy then when we enter the drama ourselves. So David is entering the drama, and he's inviting us into the drama as well, or, or, or the Lord is, I should say. The first place that David inserts himself both into the text and to the dra- into the drama is here in verse 1. Look at it. Yahweh says to my Adonai. Now, let's pause to ask the question, who is the first person speaker or writer behind the my in my Lord? Isn't it David? Well, if we swim around in the text, as one of my preaching profs used to say, we need to swim around in the text, and we find that there's only one first-person reference in the whole psalm. It's this one, my Lord. And so there's only one answer. It's got to be David. It can't be Yahweh. He's about to speak. It can't be Adonai. He's not referring to himself. It's got to be David, my Lord. And in verse 5, we read, the Lord Adonai is at your right hand. Who does your refer to? Well, we'll get into it a bit next week, but for now, I'm going to suggest it's also David. Two, Two places. He's not only a narrator. He's not only an amanuensis. He's a character and a participant in the story, in the conversation. So now we've established, I think, that David is both the recorder of and a character within the psalm, and next week we'll see that we're invited in to it as well. Secondly, David is speaking to God the Son, I'm sorry, God is speaking to God the Son about his unique place, position, and posture. His unique place, position, and and posture. Now, It'd be very easy and, frankly, less controversial to assume and assert that Yahweh here refers to God the Father and Adonai refers to God the Son, as much uh, most of the church has taught over the ages. And this would be nice, neat, and very historically orthodox. And it's, I'm not saying at all that it would be or it has been a bad, false, or wrong understanding over the centuries. It may be the right one. I am saying, however, sometimes historically orthodox treatments of Holy Scripture may at times be safe, but miss something of truth. Here, I believe we're joining David in the text and by the Spirit 
to hear a thoroughly Trinitarian conversation between the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, about the place, position, and posture of the Son as he prepares for incarnation, a holy, righteous, and exemplary human life, and full obedience all the way to the cross in the hope of resurrection and glory forever after. Now, by way of confession, I really don't know what Jewish folk have done with this text in Hebrew scripture, but a thoroughly Trinitarian faith and a thoroughly Trinitarian understanding of the whole Bible is really, really useful for a semblance of logical, biblical Christian understanding, and especially here in Psalm 110. I know that we try to come to the text with the fewest number of presuppositions that we possibly can, but a Trinitarian presupposition is very helpful here. Come into it thinking, okay, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How does that fit in this, in, in this psalm? And it fits perfectly. Oh, and also David's involved as well. As we mentioned, we have three characters in Psalm 110, the one true living and triune God, the pre-incarnate Son of God, separate and distinct from the Trinity of which he is part, who would come a thousand years later, 900 to a thousand years later in the person of Jesus Christ, and David, each playing a more or less important role in the action Verses 1, 2, and 3, Yahweh speaks, Adonai, Adonai receives, and David does the narrating and applying. Let's see that here, verses 1 and 2. Yahweh says to my Adonai, or the Lord says to my Lord, here, here's what he's saying, here's, here's the direct quote, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, end quote. It's important to understand because what follows in 2 and 3 are applications. This is not part of the quote. So this is David entering into the conversation or entering into the transmission to us of what is in mind here. The Lord Yahweh says to my Lord Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, period, end of quote. The Lord Yahweh sends forth from Zion your, Adonai, your mighty scepter, You, Adonai, rule in the midst of your enemies. Now, since we're seeing here that this is the triune God speaking to the pre-incarnate Son, Jesus Christ, we have to believe he is promising to prepare the battlefield, as we used to say in military terms. That is, for the Son to go into the the incarnation and to do his work to free the captives from sin work that only he could do, and work that he did primarily on the cross, but also in concert with the resurrection. Both are necessary, two sides of the same coin, death for sin, resurrection for justification. We'll look at more of, uh, of all of this next Sunday, but I got to go, because so, I, you know, I promised the organizer of the meal today that I'd cut it short, so I'm, I'm trying to help her here. Number three, every time I go off script, I gotta come back and figure out where I'm at. Number three, textual point number three, the promise of a renewed and right relationship between God in Christ Jesus and his people. Well, let's read the text first. 
your Adonai, this is from Yahweh, the Lord, to Adonai, the Lord, your people, very interesting, the NIV said troops, there is a war theme here, some uh, see this only in militaristic terms, this psalm I mean, uh, God as warrior going before us, and, and he does do that in the battle, I'm not saying that that's not true. But I think this reference here is more general than that. I think it's talking about God's people, and we'll see next week that we are engaged in the battle, every single one of us who are believers, disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian life is a battle. It is not a pacifistic exercise. It's a battle against the devil, the flesh, and the world. And we are to follow our commander, the Lord Jesus, into the battle. More about that next week. Verse 3. Your people, Yahweh speaking to Adonai here, will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. Hmm, That's very interesting, isn't it? The day of your power. We might think of Pentecost here. In holy garments, this phrase, holy garments, is uh, is quite a regular reference to persons being cleansed, forgiven of their sins, and readied to live and appear before God in holy garments, white garments. Uh, There are a number of pictures in Revelation making reference to their holy garments. From the womb of the morning, that is, even before the morning was born, was dawned, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Through David's application here, The Lord Yahweh continues the promise to Lord Adonai. And I believe this is only to be fully fulfilled at the end of the age, which we read about in the book of Revelation. But in the interim, we can give ourselves to Adonai, the Lord Jesus Christ, fully and freely and join with him in the tearing down of strongholds against God's rule and authority and the building up of his eternal kingdom. But again, we'll see much more next Sunday. I hope you'll be able to join us for then. But for now, this is how Dr. Alistair McGrath concluded his book, What Was God Doing on the Cross? Is the cross a symbol of hope in the midst of a world of death and suffering? Yes. Is the cross a symbol of a God who is with us in this dark world and beyond? Yes. In short, the cross stands for a hope that is for real, in a world that is for real. But that world will pass away, while that hope will remain for eternity. I had an opportunity to discuss with a friend, shall we say, end-of-life issues this week. 
My main topic and question was, where is your hope? And I'd like for us to finish with that question for ourselves. Where is your hope? Where is my hope? Where is our hope? Is my hope, is your hope, is our hope as a congregation in our circumstances? Or our bank accounts? Or our standing in the community? Or in something or someone else? Or is our hope in Jesus Christ, the one and only Son of the living God, Adonai, the prophesied Messiah, and ancestral son of David, the Word made flesh, the angel heralded Savior of the world, the Lord of glory. The Bible resounds with the truth, only in Jesus will we find true hope. In fact, it goes quite a bit further than that. If, if we are well acquainted with the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible, amen, that we know the Bible insists that if Jesus is not our ultimate hope, then we are not Christians. At least not biblical Christians. Friends, let's put our whole faith and our whole hope as individuals, as families, and as a local congregation of Jesus' people in God in Christ Jesus, today, tomorrow, and always. Amen and amen. I know it says in your bulletin that the benediction and closing prayer will be from Revelation 4. I want to share it with you right now uh, so we don't have to bounce back and forth. Revelation chapter 4, listen to this picture. It's part, it's included, I sh should say, in the vision that we see in Psalm 110, looking forward to the fruits, if you will, of the labors of the Lord Adonai. John writing here in the spirit, I, after this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as if, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four li living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come.
And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Amen. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we, with the elders and with the four creatures and with the angelic host, we say, holy, holy, holy are you, Lord God. You are worthy of our worship. You are more than worthy of our attention and our time and our energy and our resources. Lord, I pray that as we acknowledge and step into the drama that you have created and that you are creating and that you will conclude, that we will recognize and submit to Jesus Christ, Lord of glory, Son of David, Word made flesh. And that we'll see here today and next week as we look at this Psalm 110, as Yahweh says to my Adonai, sit here at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Help us too to wait patiently for you to prepare the battlefield and then to step into the battle following our commander. Lord, as we continue on with this service in the taking of Holy Communion as we pray for each other and as we take in a fellowship meal. I pray, Lord, that you would join us, that you would bless this food to the nourishment of our bodies, this fellowship to your glory and our good, and that you would continue to grow us up into the knowledge of Jesus Christ until he comes. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.